1: I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Today on Super Soul Sunday, he's been named one of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine. Journalist, podcaster, and author of five New York Times bestselling books, Malcolm Gladwell. As a columnist for The New Yorker and host of the popular podcast, Revisionist History, Malcolm challenges us to look at life from a different perspective. We first met on The Oprah Show to discuss his book, Blink, which became a global phenomenon, selling nearly six million copies. It's been translated into more than 25 languages. In a time when division, tension, and anger seem to pervade our daily lives, Malcolm Gladwell once again invites us to turn the world on to its side and take a closer look at what's really going on. In his gripping new book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know, Malcolm puts forth the theory that too often we make dramatic, often dangerous assumptions about people we don't know. Through well-known cases like the Bernie Madoff scandal and the Amanda Knox trial, the Jerry Sandusky abuse trial, and the racially charged arrest and death of Sandra Bland, Malcolm Gladwell examines his belief that many of us unconsciously invite conflict and misunderstanding into our own lives. I have to tell you, I love this book. This is my favorite of all the books, except Tipping Point Blink, David and Goliath. And... (laughs) But this is, I think, some of your most profound work. Oh, thank you. And particularly for a time such as this that we're living in. And everybody thinks the world is topsy-turvy. And you have a way of throwing over the rocks and letting us see underneath and allowing us to actually see that things are not always as they seem. Mm -hmm. And now you have so many imitators that they're called the Gladwellian imitators.
2: How does that feel? (laughs) You you might have a few yourself. (laughs) Uh, I don't think of them as imitators. You don't? No, I always thought. By that
1: I mean you've created entirely new genre of books. Uh I always thought I was
2: joining a a movement as opposed to leading a movement. I sort of felt like I was doing what journalists and academics have always tried to do, which is to give us the means to look at familiar problems in a new way. So it's always odd to think of yourself as being the, someone who started something. I think that's a little, I'll let others say that. Okay, I'm you saying
1: it. you started something. All right, I'll accept yes, it. Yes, this Gladwellian era that we're in now of the genre of books. But this is particularly interesting, talking to strangers. How did you come to decide that this was going to be the next book? You know, we literally are waiting for, when the next book is coming out. It's been now almost six years. Mm -hmm. How did you decide that this would be it? And talking to strangers was the rock you wanted to uncover. Yeah.
2: We had that wave of police shooting cases, brutality cases, Mm. beginning with Michael Brown in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I was really shaken up by them. And then I sort of began to read about that problem and realized it had been going on forever, which I, I suppose is very naive of me not to have realized that. Mm-hmm. That it was, on a scale I had never imagined, A 1,000 civilians are killed every year by police in this country. It's um,
1: particularly been going on forever with African Americans. I was saying this to my white friends, and they were saying, oh, no, no, no. I go, it's been going on forever. Now we just have the cameras to exactly. show you.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just thought there was something broader there, that the kind of ways in which we were trying to make sense of these events seemed to me to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. And I also, what I don't, what I really dislike about those kinds of cases is where we have a big fuss, and there's all kinds of people jumping up and down, and we end up pointing at someone and saying. "Yeah, Because we're always looking to blame someone. Yeah. It's him. Yeah. He just didn't know what he was, he's racist, he didn't know what he was doing, he's a bad cop, he's an evil person. And I think, you know what, if it happens as often as it happens, maybe there's something deeper going on here. And I'm deeper also, than racism? Well, in addition to, you can't separate race from these police shooting cases. It is inextricably part of the reason why they happen. But you also can't say that this is just about a racist cop. Because it's more than that. It's there's something deeper going on with the way in which we have structured relationships between, not just between police officers and civilians, but also between strangers of all kinds. And that's really why, where I, I got to with my book. I was like, can we take a step back and say, wait a minute, is there something fundamentally wrong with the way we are making sense of people who are different from ourselves? Are we bringing the wrong strategies to that problem? And is there a way for me to kind of shed a light on those kinds of strategies in a, in a way that helps us not just make sense of things like, Sandra Bland or Michael Brown or, you know, Jerry like Sandusky, McDonald. Amanda Knox, Amanda Knox, Jerry Sandusky, yeah, the Stanford
1: rape case, Bernie, Bernie made yes.
2: I mean, all of these cases struck me as being versions of the same problem, which is. There are two people are trying to have a conversation and they can't figure each other out. And they can't figure out each other out because they're, they're making errors. So the question is, what are those errors? You write on page 14, if
1: we were more thoughtful as a society, if we were willing to engage in some soul searching about how we approach and make sense of strangers, Sandra Blonde would not have ended up dead in a Texas jail cell. So
2: she's a central figure in this book. Tell me why. So she's the beginning and the end of the book. She's the frame for the whole book. Obviously, I have thousands of cases I could have picked To be the frame for it but there was something about just how stupid and senseless and heartbreaking her case was here's a woman who is 28 years old who has come to get us to start her life anew in prairie view texas yeah in a lovely little college town in
1: in the middle of rural Texas. And we must say, this happened, as you just mentioned, after Michael Brown, after Freddie Gray, after after Orlando Castile, Eric Garner, uh, Walter Scott, Yeah. and now now Sandra Bland.
2: Now Sandra Bland. And she's a very politically aware person, but she's she's really, she had some difficulties in Chicago. She's moving, she's starting her life over. She literally arrived in, in Prairie View, Texas that day, she gets has a job interview, she gets this job, she's leaving the campus to buy groceries. And a police officer looks at her and makes a judgment. And his judgment is, I think there's something funny about her. And he trumps up an excuse to pull her over. And what what is, what is so heartbreaking about that case, as you remember, is we have the dash cam, mm-hmm. records the conversation that ensues between- We all hear the entire conversation. The whole conversation. And it goes on for pages well
1: it starts out he's he's friendly he comes up and asks her is she okay and why are you here and we think it's fine until he asks her to put out the cigarette, cigarette. Yes.
2: and she says correctly why do i have to put out my cigarette and by the way she hasn't done anything right he pulls up behind her this is a kind of weird but important detail he pulls in behind her. She turns right out of the campus, and she's going along the ring road of the campus. And he thinks there's something funny about her. So he pulls out, and he drives up really fast behind her. So what does she do? She moves over to get out of the way, of course, which is what you do when a cop is driving really That's fast right. behind That's right. You do the thing that we were told we were supposed to do, pull over to the side. But she doesn't use a turning signal. Because she's getting out of the way, right? Yes. So what does he do? He pulls her over and says, ma'am, you didn't Turn. You didn't use your turning signal. It's a completely. And she's like, Wait, "What did I do? I mean, I didn't use my turning signal because I was getting out, out of, of your way. way." Exactly. Yes. And so she's irritated, as she should be, on this Trump. And so he is about to tell her, "Ma'am, you should have used your your turning signal." She lights a cigarette. He says, "Could you put that out?" And she says, "Correctly, no. Why do I have to put out a cigarette?" And then, what the thing? Everything goes sideways. And they have this argument that escalates, and he ends up hitting her, dragging her out of the car, handcuffing her,
0: and putting her in jail. Yeah,
2: yes. Where she commits suicide two days later. Yes. I must have read and listened to that transcript. I can't even tell you how many times. It upsets me more each time I hear it. And Mm -hmm. the question is, how is it something that trivial can go so badly awry in the in broad daylight in one of the most civilized countries in the world.
1: Yes, and you say so correctly, we see that story, we see Philando Castile, we see Michael Brown, we see all those stories, and people just move on. Yeah. And you wrote talking to strangers because you
2: wanted us to stop and not move on. I don't want people to ever forget who Sandra Bland is. But we can't keep filing these things away and forgetting about them without drawing some kind of conclusions about why they happen.
1: So how do we begin to actually shift from the judgment of others and then start looking at ourselves and asking the question, what role do I play in this? Is that your attempt to try to get us to do that?
2: So what I wanted to do with the book is to systematically break down the faulty assumptions that lead encounters between strangers to go awry. So I meet you for the first time. All we know about each other is what we can see about each other. We start to have a conversation. Yeah. Sometimes that goes well, sometimes it goes horribly wrong.
1: But we're making judgments all the, the time, time based on our own unconscious biases and conscious.
2: Exactly. Correct? I'll give you one of the ones that I spend a lot of time on is was what I call the assumption of transparency, which is when I see you, I observe your demeanor, your face, your expressions, your emotions, your body language, and I draw conclusions about that. And my assumption is that the way you represent your emotions on your face and with your body language is reflective, is consistent with the way you feel in your heart. If you smile at me, it means you're happy. If you frown at me, it means you're not happy, right? That is true with some people, some of the time but it is not true of many people a lot of the time. Now, I think it's so interesting because
1: you use in the book, you call it, I think, the Friends fallacy. Yeah. Because we've all grown up watching these sitcoms and we see in the characters the, the match between whatever's going on looks like whatever their face is also representing. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, I, so I took a, an episode of Friends. And by the way, when you watch Friends, you're reminded about how insanely complex those shows were. Like, So much happens. So my first thing was, if you turn off the sound on an episode of Friends, can you follow what's going on? And the answer is, absolutely. Absolutely. And why can you follow? Because they're insanely complicated. Because everything that happens is on everyone's face. When Monica is angry, she looks angry. When Ross is perplexed, he looks perplexed, and all the way down the line. And that's our assumption of the way the world works. We assume that our... Emotions are reliably being broadcast to the world. Turns out, that's not true at all. So I had a, a psychologist who studies facial expressions analyze a segment of that friend's episode for me and break it down. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely the case. She using the, there's a kind of way in which emotions of the face can be registered and, and kind of- Yeah, note, I thought
1: this was so re- fascinating. Recorded. Yes.
2: Yeah. And what, I, what she did was she said, okay, in a, in a specific subset of a scene where Ross is really angry, what's on his face? And the answer is the perfect illustration of anger. And in a specific scene where Monica has mixed emotions, she is both upset at, at her brother, her brother but, finding also, them, but also, but also like wants to express her love for her no. brother. Does her face show that mix of emotions? The answer is totally does. Why? Because they're actors. In the real world... When I was reading this, I must say, Malcolm, I was thinking, the Friends actors
1: are going to be so happy to read this because <laughs> yeah. you were saying perfect, perfect execution perfect. of um, the emotion, right? Yes, of yeah. the... But in the real world, that doesn't... It doesn't work that way. May I say that so many times I was reading this book and I'd get to the end of a, uh, 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 an analysis and I'd go, gosh, that is so true. So true. Because in the real world, it doesn't. It doesn't match. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break.
0: No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Shop Asian-American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store.
2: I have a chapter on the Amanda Knox case. Yes. That's the whole Amanda Knox case in a nutshell. Her inner emotions don't match the way she behaves. She behaved like someone who didn't care what happened to her dead roommate. Inside she cared, but she just is someone who those, her inner feelings and her outward expression of emotion don't match.
1: And it started the moment she was with other friends of the roommate who was murdered, and she didn't have the same reaction they did. So they then become suspicious of why isn't she behaving like us. Why isn't she grieving? Yeah.
2: Why was her hug so stiff? The technical word for what she is is mismatched. Her inner feelings don't match her outward emotions. When we deal with someone who is mismatched, There's a very real risk we will get them very badly wrong. So Bernie Madoff is mismatched. He's in the opposite way. I don't know if you, did you ever meet him? No, I no, never had a I, I, I microphone. Thank
1: God I was not invested <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. with him. Yes. Oh, exactly. Thank goodness I didn't meet him, because I, I would have I would have been seduced yeah. too. You yeah. know why? Because I would have heard from I would have thought, well, this person's in it, and Ellie Wiesel, such a dear friend of mine, and Ellie Wiesel was in I would have thought, well, if this person's involved and this person's invested and this person's invested, must be a great guy. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. have all of these outstanding people who also care about their, you know, finances invested with him if, he, if they hadn't checked him out. That's what I probably psychopath. would have thought.
2: Yeah, but he, yeah, he is someone who's, inside he's a psychopath, outside he seems like the most trustworthy kind of man of integrity. And that's So that's problem number
1: one. But I, no, we haven't talked about the one thing that's now gonna become a cultural phrase and everybody is going to be talking about the truth default, Yes. defaulting to the truth. Yeah. The reason why everyone accepted Bernie Madoff is because the default to the truth.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting idea from a psychologist called Tim Levine, who I think is an absolute, who has brilliantly rethought some of the most central issues about how human beings communicate. And his core insight is he's dealing with the fact that human beings are really bad at figuring out when someone else is lying. Yeah. We're just all, with some exceptions... Including judges. Judges are bad at it, the cops are bad at it. There's a few tiny exceptions, but generally we're not good at it. And the question is why aren't we good? You'd think we'd be good, right? Wouldn't evolution have favored those who are good at detecting deception? Right. And he says no. The opposite is true that we are conditioned by evolution to basically assume that. Everyone is telling the truth, unless there is some overwhelming reason to believe otherwise. Unless the doubts rise so high that there's just no way to believe someone's telling us the truth anymore.
1: And I think it's wonderful that you start with people right where they live. You were saying, and everybody can relate to this, if you believe your spouse is cheating on you, Mm -hmm. and you ask a question, uh, are you cheating on me, or what this doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense and they give a reasonable answer, most people will believe it yeah, the first time.
2: You will default to truth. You, you will default will, to truth. It's our our preferred position is to believe that the world is telling us the truth. And that's why human society works. If I, if every statement you make, I think, I don't know, she lying, we couldn't have a conversation. Yeah. If, if, that, if everyone does that, then the world doesn't work. And that's Tim Levine's point is that the reason human society functions is because we have a baseline assumption that people are not lying to us. And what that means is, every now and again, one time out of a hundred, when someone really is lying to us, there's a strong chance we're gonna get taken. We're gonna get deceived. Yeah,
1: let's talk about Sandusky. Mm -hmm. and the people who end up having to serve time because they defaulted to the truth for too long. Let's talk about that.
2: So we all remember the horrible case at Penn State of Jerry Sandusky, this serial child molester who was a prominent football coach at the school. He was apprehended, he was convicted, he's now in jail for the rest of his life. But the Penn State, the prosecution didn't stop there. They then went and went after senior officials at the university, including the university's president, yes, case is still ongoing, but have pursued a criminal case against those senior administrators as well for a cover-up, for basically of not, of letting this man run free on the Penn State campus. I feel very strongly that it is wrong to pursue a criminal case against those university administrators. What they were, they were deceived by a child molester. And by the way, child molester is one of the things that makes them child molesters, is they're really good at deceiving the rest of the world. That's what I've
1: been trying to tell people. It's not easy. Because if if you're not good at it, then you can't succeed in seducing the child. Yeah, Yeah.
2: It's like putting, did we put the people who were deceived by Bernie Madoff into jail? Did we say you should have known better, you were, were," no, we didn't. I, I really think that attitude is deeply, deeply problematic. Why... We cannot look back in retrospect and and blame someone for the failure to pick out a one in a million psychopath. We're not hardwired to find psychopaths in our midst. One of the big themes of this book, and this does tie back very strongly to the Sandra Bland case, is that we need to be far more generous in our assessment of other people. Yes, We are just so quick yes. to assume that something, there was a cover-up, someone was negligent, someone, and not, and it, I think it's important for us to pause and to understand when when sometimes when mistakes are made, it is because of perfectly understandable or legitimate reasons. Well,
1: you keep kicking the rock and uncovering so many interesting things in talking to strangers. One of the things that struck me was the Stanford rape case. Can mm-hmm. we talk about that?
2: I'm quite sure this is going to be the, most talked about part of the book, and it was really hard to write about. So that was the case where, happened a couple years ago, uh, a freshman at Stanford, a boy, meets a young woman at a frat party. They're both very, very drunk, and he takes her outside, and he sexually assaults her. And he's discovered, and he's tried, and he spent six months in jail. Hugely controversial case at the time, particularly because It comes, it is a kind of the, one of those signature cases that has thrown a spotlight on just how much, uh, how big a problem sexual assault now is on campus. And I was interested in one specific part of that case, which is, to what extent does alcohol contribute to this epidemic of sexual assault? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because the weird thing is that when you start digging through the case files of sexual assault cases, everyone's always drunk. Really, really hard to find a sexual assault case where both parties were sober. You mean on campus? On campus. Talk okay. about campus. Yeah. On campus. Yeah. And so I started to talk to people who study sexual assault on campus and people who study alcohol, and and they were like, well, yes, it's almost always alcohol is almost always involved. And they began to talk me through the research. Well, when you drink, and by the way, the way that many of the people who are in, involved in these cases, and also I might I might say more generally. The core of people who are drinking on campus in today's environment are drinking in a way that you and I did not drink in in that age. Drinking has changed quite dramatically over the last twenty. years. Yes, when I
1: was just reading about this, it's like everybody's drinking everything.
2: Today, if you talk to, I was talking to some friends of mine, children of friends of mine who are in college right now, and I said, how many of your friends have experienced blackouts? And they're just like, down the list. Every weekend, this guy, we talk about it, you know, they talk about it on Friday night before they go about they're going to get blackout drunk. This, It's a very different environment and that has consequences for their ability to talk to strangers. Parties are about talking to strangers. When both strangers are drunk, it's a different conversation. So, so, so this
1: was the thing that was so revealing to me. Many of those who study alcohol no longer consider it an agent of disinhibition. I mean, I underline that because all of our lives we've been told it's disinhibition. Mm. Instead, you say they think of it as an agent of myopia. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you mean by that.
2: So the old theory about alcohol was Malcolm gets drunk and as Malcolm gets a little tipsy, what you see is the real Malcolm. Yeah. All of the, constraint, yeah. the uptight Malcolm falls away and you're seeing like, you see my true self. We no longer believe that, that's nonsense. Instead, what's happening is a little more complicated. When you drink, what's happening is you're, you basically get dumber. Your cognitive faculties start to kind of shrink. And what happens when that, when your cognitive faculties shrink, when you get dumber, is that you get myopic. Everything that is- Meaning you just focused on what's in front of you. All that matters is you, okay, drunk Malcolm, all, I, all that matters is not just you in front of me, but all that matters is what's happening right at this very moment. Mm-hmm. So normally I don't do certain kinds of crazy things because I realize, oh, there'll be consequences. Half an hour later, I'll get in trouble or tomorrow I'll mm-hmm. wake up and I'll be like, oh my God, that was, that's why I behave the way I behave when I'm sober. When I'm drunk, all thought of tomorrow falls away. All thought of consequences falls away. And what matters is just here and now, person in front of me yeah I am myopic yeah and when you are myopic you are not yourself right
1: I thought another great example that you used Malcolm is that the drinking affects you differently depending on where you are that if you're drinking and you're at a football game and everybody else is drinking then it is euphoric and mm-hmm. blah 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 and if you are sitting alone at a bar and you're drinking alone, Mm -hmm. that the alcohol has a completely different effect.
2: Yes. So myopia theory says that whatever is your immediate circumstance is controlling the way you think and feel and behave. So if I'm drunk and in a wild and crazy party, I'm wild and crazy. Mm -hmm. If I'm drunk in a dark, quiet, deserted bar, I'm depressed. So you're at the mercy of your environment. Now, think about this. Interesting. You take an 18-year-old, yeah. who is full of hormones, who's immature, who doesn't have much experience with girls. You take him to a frat party, you get him two, two and a half times the legal limit of alcohol. So he is completely myopic. You crank up the music, you have all kinds of mayhem around him. First of all, he's no longer himself. And secondly, he is primed to do something incredibly stupid, if not criminal. We need just a a formula for something bad happening. Something super, super bad happening. And we're not communicating that fact to kids. We're not telling that 18-year-old boy who goes to that frat party, if you get blotto drunk, you are putting not just yourself at risk, other people at risk, right? There's a sense that alcohol is a kind of harmless. Mm -hmm. It's not harmless. It is a dangerous, dangerous drug. And I think the absence What makes me so... And what makes it more dangerous is not being aware of the
1: consequences of what happens. And it's not just, I think we've done a fairly decent job Mm -hmm. in recent years of not driving while drunk or not doing certain things when you're intoxicated. But what talking to strangers allows us to see is that it's even deeper than that. It's deeper than,
2: I can't, if I am wasted right now, I have no way to really understand who you are or what you want, right? So if we're having a conversation and I'm, I'm half as smart as I normally am and all thought of tomorrow has fallen away, and then maybe I'm blacked out so I can't remember anything, people forget being blackout drunk is not the same as being passed out. I can, I can walk and talk and communicate and tell jokes and wave my hands in the air. It's just that I'm forming no memories. So think about two people you got a boy who's like 18 and full of hormones, you know, what does he want at a party? Absolutely, we know what he wants at a party. And we're asked, he's trying to negotiate that with a woman and who knows what his, what he's, is he, if she he's, says-
1: He's trying to negotiate with a woman who's also- Who's also
2: blackout drunk. Yeah. So if she says, no, get away from me, he doesn't remember it, right? Or care. Or care, or care for that matter. Yeah, because he's not thinking about the consequences of tomorrow. Yeah.
1: Also not reading any of the signals. Not reading, not any, I- of not signals. reading any of the signals. Yeah. This is interesting to me because when I was thinking, you know, this is certainly not an excuse, it's just an explanation. It's exactly right. Not yeah. an excuse, it's it's an explanation. So I was thinking that in many of these cases, when people have been blackout drunk and people are like, of course you should remember, of course you should know, of course you did that, perhaps they don't.
2: In the Stanford rape case, one of the Heartbreaking things is Jane Doe, the victim, her last memory is at midnight before she'd even met her assailant, and her next memory is waking up in the hospital and not knowing why she's there It's all gone right and I think that that's sort of what made that makes that case extraordinarily poignant and it's so interesting too that
1: when surveys were done and students are asked, what could we do to deter some of the sexual assaults on campus. People talk about everything other than drinking.
2: Yeah, which I don't understand. I don't understand how we got to this position where drinking became I think became this is going to make
1: a difference, actually, because yeah. I think it's going to make people stand up and look at things in a different kind of way.
0: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Something should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests. Not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, Brilliantly Boring Since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, Member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts.
1: Let's switch to some soul-to-soul questions. Do you mind? Sure. OK. What is the piece of wisdom you wish the leaders of the
2: world would use in their decision-making? It's OK to be wrong. Ah. Uh, just, it's fine. Just say, I, I blew it. Let's just try and figure out a better way.
1: Is there something about the times we're living in now that that's harder, more, hard, more difficult than ever, more challenging than ever, do you
2: think? People say that. There's something about the media culture maybe, but I don't think, you know, the minute you get outside of New York City and Washington DC, people aren't unforgiving. People are just waiting for one of their leaders to stand up and say, I'm sorry I screwed up. Help me do this better. They're just waiting for it. I don't think they would reject that or get angry or, it just has to be said with a certain amount of grace and humility. I think. There is as much appetite for longing for humility in our leaders today as there's ever been.
1: And forgiveness too. And forgiveness. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't think this I don't think this is something that's fundamentally changed in human nature.
1: Because people fundamentally are always doing exactly what you say, defaulting to the truth. They want to believe. They want to believe. That's why it's it's so difficult when people are shown the truth right before their eyes for them to actually acknowledge right. that it's actually happening. What's the most selfless thing you've ever seen? Selfless. The selfless thing you've ever witnessed firsthand.
2: Wow. Most is a kind of, uh, part of me is like whenever I talk to anyone I know who's a young mother and I figure out how many hours they sleep, you know, is there anything more selfless than that, than waking up at... There isn't. There isn't. So so maybe that's it. I mean, No, no are
1: more selfless than actually being a good mother or a good yeah. parent. I, yeah. I don't... I, I yeah. mean, that, that kind of... That would be top of my list. Yeah, I
2: think when that's probably... When you think of
1: all the things that people have to do. I used to think about this all the time with my producers. Tara's one of them who has five kids. So she's there in, in, in the office the same amount of time I am. I come home. I come home to, uh-huh, three dogs. Mm -hmm. She goes home, you step in the door, there are five kids who don't care that you had a whole day and what happened in that day, but you you have to be just as you need to be for them in that moment. I I don't know anything more selfless than that. I think it's
2: probably high on my list.
1: What is the question or the mystery Mm -hmm. that sits in your mind, this question I thought of just for you, that you hope to have answered in your lifetime? And I ask that question because you're one who's always uncovering the mysteries for us.
2: One question I have always wondered about is what does it mean to change someone's mind? Mm. Um, I'm less and less sure of my ability to change people's minds. And I'm wondering, is it because I'm doing things wrong? Is it because it's much more fun just to play to the people who are already in agreement with you? Am I. Narrowing myself and just speaking to, m- to the kind of. But familiar may I voices. say,
1: just reading this book, I don't know if my mind was changed, but it certainly was opened. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go and read it again because it's done that thing that you most want to do is to get people to think differently about something. Mm-hmm. And what I'm always searching for in my conversations with people is that moment where you can get them or the audience to think, oh, gee, I never thought of it that way before. And this is filled with that in every chapter.
2: Yeah, yeah. But you are an unusually open-minded person, right? I don't know if I'm unusually open-minded, but I'm I'm open-minded, yeah. So my question is, I had this incredibly interesting conversation with a Jesuit priest named James Martin, who, one of his causes is, can I get my church to accept gay people? Mm. But is there a way for me and not accept in the sense of he doesn't think he can get the Pope to change church right. but just to, to embrace, embrace the church, them the people in the church. Yeah, embrace them, treat them as any as they would treat any other human being or any other Catholic. And I was fascinated to talk to him about so he's grappling with this problem. can I ch- can I change someone's mind who's not inclined to change their own, their own mind? Is there a way for me to Deal with this issue with such sensitivity and intelligence and restraint and humility that they will move from I don't want to talk about it to you know I will I will happily you know pray next to someone like this on a Sunday morning and that I was just so kind of uh, in awe of how he was approaching that question and unsure about how whether I could ever figure out how to tackle a task like that.
1: Well, isn't it true, though, that you can never do it in theory? I remember in all the years of The Oprah Show that the way we got people to see things differently and even many times to change their mind is not by doing, for example, a show about gay people. But incorporating in the early years, gay people taking care of their children, or gay people doing ordinary things that everyone else did, and then you see, oh, gee, they're just like they're just like me. I think yeah. you have to have a sense of, oh, I see myself in this person. That person's just like me. And so then now, what does it mean to be gay? Yeah. Because in so many other ways, they are just like yeah. me. Yeah.
2: Yes. Well, you had the great benefit, well, this is a crucial and really interesting point, which is, you had the benefit of time. Yes. So you took people on a journey that lasted...
1: 25 years. 25 years, yeah.
2: And I think that that was the, they started with you way, way back when they came to trust you, and slowly over time, I'm sure you must have changed. But. So, if, but twenty-five years is a long time, right? That's No, but listen, this l- 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 l-
1: Malcolm. I remember being in a grocery store once. This is one of my favorite moments when a woman stopped me and she said, "I've been watching your show, and it wasn't the first time you said it because I didn't believe you." She said, "But it's because you have been consistent." Yes. She said, "You've been consistent." And I watch you, and every time you talk about kids, you say, don't hit your kids, don't hit your kids. And I'm and then you talk about Gail, don't hit her kids. She said, and I'm like, how are you gonna have good kids if you don't hit them? So she said, the last time I heard you talk about hitting your kids, I said, I'm gonna try it for one week. She said, so I went a week and I didn't hit my kid. And then I went another week and I didn't hit my kid. And she said, it's been three months and I haven't hit my kid and I have a different kid and I'm a different mother. Mm-hmm. So it's not one thing, it's mm-hmm. the, over time, you know,
2: Yeah, yeah. you're saying. Yeah. No, I think that is the... But, you know, that idea of introducing patience into the process is really crucial, though. Like, maybe we get into trouble when we're just too... we think we can do these kinds of changes overnight. And what we need to do is accept the fact that it's a 25-year process. Yes.
1: I read this book and then ended up calling you because I wanted to have a conversation. And I feel that way, I feel so passionately, when I experience something that changes the way I see myself and I see others, which I think is what this book has done. So I want people to read Talking to Strangers because it's one of those experiences that will actually change the way you not just see strangers, it will change the way you look at the news, it will change the way you experience all encounters with other people yeah. when you sent this off to your publisher mm. and you had done the final page and brought us all the way back around to Sandra Bland your deepest hope for the book was
2: that we would all acknowledge our complicity in the death of Sandra Bland mm. that that wasn't about a rogue cop and a stupid you know, small town and what have you. It was about that we have institutionalized ways of dealing with strangers that make no sense. We have asked police officers, required them, forced them, pushed them to making judgments about people that shouldn't be made.
1: You were saying it may be about some of what it looked like, but there was also so much more.
2: There was so much more. We have designed, I mean, the last part of the book is really about how are these faulty ideas about dealing with strangers affected the way our law enforcement system is designed? And the answer is, all the things we talked about, assumptions about transparency, right. default to truth, have fed into... What's a match? What isn't a match? Yeah. Have fed into a philosophy of law and order, which has had disastrous results.
1: So you didn't let us forget Sandra Bland?
2: No. Thank you. Let's not, let's not ever forget her.
1: Thank you.